what is the difference between a cancer cell and a, a healthy cell in the body? So you might say that from, a, from you know, the definition of, of intelligence, that the cancer cell is more intelligent because it's achieving its goal more efficiently. But it lacks the experience that it's actually a cell in a body which is, is interdependent for its life. So it's a very good metaphor for how we live on this planet. If we, if we lose the wisdom, if we lack the, the we have lost our, um, our understanding, our, our, and it's not an intellectual understanding, it's an experience that you're a part of this interdependent web of life, then all of our intelligence is gonna be destructive because it's gonna be like a cancer cell. It's not gonna be um, beneficial for the web of life. Welcome, this is Mind the Shift and I am Anders. I am happy to introduce you today to Pad Shapiro. Welcome to the show, Pad. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So uh, you and I, we we got to know each other not that long ago, a few months ago, I would say. And we found that we in many ways share uh, what some people might call maybe an unconventional view on society, the world, life, things like that. Um, we're both former mainstream journalists. Uh, you know, I've worked and I, I guess uh, many of the many many of those who are listening and watching know that I have been working I've worked uh, for a long time for for a big newspaper I've worked at other desks as well but mainly at a, a large morning newspaper here in Sweden but I quit doing that and you used to work for the the Swedish national radio uh, you, you weren't employed there, but you did a lot of work for them for, for many, many years. But then you quit. You started a, a channel or a podcast, just like like I have, of your own. And can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Why you came to the conclusion that this was not for you and, and you want to do this other thing uh, instead? Okay. So so um, do you want me to tell me about the background sort of as from my, my, my journalistic background and sort of how I came yeah. to start? Yeah. Sure. Yes, do that, and then why it all ended? <laughs> well, well, yeah. If I just you know uh, introduce myself a little bit, so um, you know, depends how far back you want to go. But um, I was born and raised in in Sweden, uh, of a Swedish mother and American father. Um, they have both left me in the in, in the last couple of years, but they're always with me. So. Um, I grew up in, in Stockholm and, and after I graduated, you know, I know when I was a student, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I studied philosophy and I, I studied Russian language and I, I was I was a foreign student in Russia. And then, you know, how, how it often is in life, you know, by chance, you know, it just happened that I was offered to stay there and teach Swedish at the university. So my life sort of took on a, a different trajectory i stayed there for like not only in russia actually i worked in russia moldova latvia in the former soviet union for 10 years altogether uh, teaching russian and i was thinking to myself so what am i going to do because i knew I'd, i wasn't going to do this forever so i had this idea that maybe i could become a journalist you know i could use my 
language skills, communication skills. And so um, when I got the opportunity, I, I re-educated myself to become a journalist. But at that time, as I said, it was mostly, you know, I thought it was a, an opportunity, an adventure. And then later it grew, grew sort of into becoming my calling in life to be a journalist. Um, Did you te teach Russian, Russian in Russia? No. No, no, no. Sorry, I was teaching Swedish for the students. So a Russian student, student oh, yeah, yeah. having Swedish as a second language, Latvian students having Swedish as a second language, uh, students in Moldova. So I would teach them, you know, they would, I would have them read Selma Lagerlöf, you know, we would discuss, and we'd teach them the grammar and phonetics of Swedish, and they would get scholarships to go to Sweden. Yeah, was, was that, was that uh, by, at the, the Swedish Institute or? Yes. Yeah, exactly. I know another guy who who did this for many years as well. Yeah, fascinating. Oh, anyway, how so? How how old were you when you when you realized that you wanted oh, uh, to become a journalist? Um, yeah, I was in the, my mid twenties when I started, and, and so uh, back and forth about ten years. Um, so yeah, it was very formative years. It was extremely um, uh, useful, you know, to to meet to live in a different cultures and learn languages, and you know, you get perspective on 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 your own culture and your own life and, and so on so it's a it's a great uh saying sweden leave it school school of life yeah and, okay uh, so yeah. then you became a journalist and and you started um, uh, producing uh radio programs or was it, did you write for newspapers as well or no i i uh I did my my sort of practice, my my um, training uh, in in the Swedish radio for the actually for the Radio Schwerzi for the Swedish Russian uh, broadcast. They have a broadcast for Russian speaking, and uh, so I got into radio, and I sort of stayed in radio mostly, and I, I did some also some some jobs for TV, but I think my heart was always in, in radio, uh, and then later on I also have been writing articles but but mostly i've been a radio man uh for most of my my time i'm working with the news news reporter but then eventually i became an investigative journalist working and, and also with documentary journalism so um i had the privilege to to do a lot of programs together with Håkan Engström at, at uh, doc, the, the swedish documentary um redaction publishing uh, mm, the desk maybe the desk yeah the, the, the yeah. documentary desk and, and so he taught me a lot of the things that you know how you create a program how you how you uh, build up dramaturgic how you can use music and so on so i think that's always always been been with me sort of that that um it's not only about uh revealing uh a truth or something it's also about telling a story uh, when you when you do uh, a radio program so um, yeah and then you know uh, i have had a lot of very good experiences you know and i learned a lot from Sveriges radio swedish radio and then uh, you know eventually i think that's a lot of us have been feeling that um journalism has been developing sort of in the wrong direction it's sort of become more and more 
controlled, less and less freedom for you as a reporter. And, and um, so um, I think it's a lot of us starting to sense this uh, more and more. And um, I have a very good friend um, in, in journalism, Johannes Wallström, one of the greatest journalists in Swedish, actually. And he's become a complete pariah. So he's basically left journalism. And he told me that, you know, he, 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 um, he's one of the close affiliates with Julian Assange. He's been working with WikiLeaks. And, and when uh, Julian Assange was dragged out of the, the Ecuadorian embassy a few years ago in London, you know, it was, it was a world news everywhere. And uh, so he was invited because he's the leading, he's the foremost expert in Sweden on Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. So he was invited, you know, to because that, you know how it works in, in the news. Everybody wants to have the same. So you're invited to Express and to the daily news and the Swedish radio, the Swedish television and TV4 and all these. So he had all those invitations that he would go and be part of this daily broadcast and explain to them what happened and so on. And then he said that within like half an hour, he got phone call after phone call after phone call canceling him oh. from all these different agencies hmm. so then you see that there's this hidden hand at work that of course it's not just by accident that they happened to uh in independently of each other decide that no we're not going to have him on the show of course hmm. there was some kind of coordination uh with uh, intelligence so uh it's not often you see it as bluntly as that but you feel it sort of more and more that there is this sort of control, there is this sort of the freedom of, of sort of just telling a story and relying that the, the, the audience is intelligent, they will get it, they can make their own judgment. It gets more and more propagandistic, more and more. So, so after a while, you know, it just comes to a point, and, and for me, it came very clearly at the beginning of the pandemic that I, I um, I had, uh, and also, you know, as I said, I lost my parents and I, and I had inherited a little bit of money. So that was an opportunity to, uh, to create my own platform. And um, so I can't. Yeah, I, first I understand there was, as you say, the pandemic was a pivotal, pivotal uh, moment for you. It was a bifurcation in, the, in your trajectory where you, where you realized that uh, I can't do this anymore. And uh, we come back to what, what what uh, I mean, one thing led to the other, and you eventually wrote a book. Also, we'll come back to that. But what was it with the pandemic that made you realize that no, I can't work with these uh, these official these mainstream media anymore. I have to create a platform of my own. What was the what was the um, the final so to speak uh, thing that made you yeah take that big decision? Well, you know, during the pandemic, it became more and more obvious that there is an urgent need to hear other points of view because there was a lot of fraudulent and very sort of, and, and that's how, you know, that's how discourse always works. You hear the different sides of it and you can make an opinion, but there was so one-sided in a time where you really needed to hear all the sides. And um, so probably the pivotal moment came because I had been working with a documentary, uh, the radio, and you know, I've been working for almost half a year, and 
was supposed to be, you know, about conspiracy theories. It's a very popular word these days during the pandemic. But we had also agreed that it, it wouldn't be, you know, just like a smear campaign to ridicule, but we would, it would be a possibility to, to, to um, bring in the different perspectives and explain and, 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 and to, to sort of, to show that, yeah, this is a time where, where people in society have very, very um, different views about what is going on and people are not trusting anymore the official narrative. So I wanted to convey that. And I, you know, I was working together with this, as I mentioned, a very good producer and uh, we had had, you know, some discussions but finally we had agreed on a program that we thought was awesome and we played it for for you know the the, the higher publisher and, and she said you know that this this sounds like a conspiracy theory we can't broadcast this and you know and then i got a long list of things that she wanted me to to, to change and uh, not because she's a bad person or anything you know it's just um sort of it becomes almost automatic that you know you you, you internalize uh, certain discourse and so and I I just looked at that long list and I just realized that I'm I'm not going to be able to put my name under this you know so um, I just said you know that we have had a lot of great successes together we have been working fine but this one is not going we're not going to finish this one together so I I uh, took the material and. Um, a friend of mine, she had been joking with me a few times, you know, when I was complaining sometimes about Sveriges Radio, that why aren't you, aren't you going to start people's radio, Folkets Radio? Because, of course, that's what the Swedish radio was intended to be. So I had the name sort of in the back of my mind, and then it just sort of just dawned on me. I think that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this material, and I'm going to, it's going to be the first program on my new broadcast, Folkets Radio, and then just took on from them. Yeah, and it kind of took off immediately, didn't it? It was kind of a success because I mean, there the, there are certain kinds of people who really the, this this alternative narrative resonates with quite a few people out there. Yeah, it 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 took off. It's over any expectation that that I've had really. So so uh, um, that's. Uh, been amazing yeah it's, it's, that's great one and a half years yeah. since i started it feels like 10 years it's been so, so intensive yeah yeah yeah. It's, yeah it's actually younger that your podcast is younger than mine because i started late summer 2020 so it's about yeah it's almost exactly three years now but uh, anyway different kinds of uh podcasts but but i mean generally we speak about things that are not mainstream that are not in the mainstream and uh, that are perceived as controversial in some camps uh now your boss there she talked about this conspiracy theory thing she said oh this looks like a conspiracy theory and you and i we have talked about that before what what a conspiracy theory is and and how that term has become toxic and it's like i mean it's the worst thing you can smear on somebody to say that 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 person is is a conspiracy theorist but but i mean and i and i've said told you that i used to be almost allergic to what I, what was uh, perceived as conspiracy theories. I have a slightly different view on it now, but I, I still think that there are 
conspiracies that are, I mean, conspiracy ideas that are not really true and and, and uh, valid. But there are also those that are valid, and also, I mean, it's it's a whole spectrum because it's a fact that high level people sit down and have meetings and decide things over the heads of many, many other people. That happens all the time. So, I mean, you could call that a conspiracy theory that, oh, I, I realized that those people that are on high levels in different sectors of society, they had a meeting and they decided on things. I mean, that's happening. That's Nobody can deny that. So, I mean, how's your, no, how's your view on, on conspiracy theories or conspiracy analyses, perhaps? Yeah. Don't get me started. Uh, <laughs> well, well let's try, to, try to make it brief. To, Two, two, two points, if I may. First of all, you know, one, one thing which is interesting, you know, I also have a very repugnant view on these sort of destructive conspiracy theories that are being circulated and really, you know, contaminates the minds of a lot of people who are free thinkers and wants to find out what's going on, you know, like QAnon stuff. And, hmm. and you know, but the, the thing is, you have to ask, and this is also a conspiracy theory, who are actually originating these this so so for instance like take, take the flat earth theory it didn't used to be an issue for 500 years and then just like tw 2019 or something it, it started to emerge in these alternative platforms uh you know and contaminating the numbers so of course if, if somebody is, is forwarding a flat earth theory and then in the next sentence he says something about the vaccines of course he's annihilated you cannot take him seriously. So, so I—that's a conspiracy theory. But I'm pretty sure that that there's a lot of of those very, very uh, sort of bad conspiracy theories that are intentionally spread to contaminate the alternative media. And then, if we you know, uh, come to the very notion of a conspiracy theory, how did it become uh, an insult? To call somebody a conspiracy theorist. Well, I, I did a whole program about that. I interviewed uh, the American professor Lance DeHaven Smith. He's written an excellent book called Conspiracy Theory in America, where he, he basically analyzes how this concept became weaponized. And it was in the, you know, in the wake in, in the after the Kennedy assassination. Uh, the official theory had so many flaws in it. So there's the, the debate was not going in the direction where so. In the beginning, you know, the official, the, the perpetrators, sort of the, the advocates of the official narrative, they would argue with, with people. But then, the, sort of, in 1967, CIA wrote a memo, which was, he, he analyzes this memo at length in this book. And they sent it out to all their contacts in, in media and said that, do not argue anymore. Go, don't go into arguments about the candidates. Don't discuss, you know, bullets coming from the wrong direction or why, why the Cadillac or the president was washed before they did the forensic examination. All these things. Don't go there. Just question the sanity of the person. Call him a conspiracy theorist. And then, you know, he's, he's insane. He might also, you know, be maybe a Soviet spy. Today would say he was a Russian influence. Uh, it's the same, you know. Um, so Lance DeHaven Smith explains that before that, this this term was hardly used at all outside the academia, you know, and it was not a prerogatory term. But after a few years, the spin they put on this term became sort of toxic, and it's and then eventually, you know, has grown into this very powerful smearing 
were that it is today. And what is also very, you know, very, um, how do you say, lumsk. Mm, sneaky or? Yeah, about it. That's a term, you know, it's a little bit like if you call somebody, um, uh, if you call somebody a Negro. So the term Negro, what does it really mean? It means black. So it's a person, I'm not a Negro, well, you're black, right? So it's taking what actually person is and making it into something bad. So mm -hmm. how do you deny it? Do you deny that you are black? So a conspiracy theorist, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong to be a conspiracy theorist. Of course, if you're an investigative journalist, what do you do? You investigate. Yeah, you investigate conspiracies all yeah. the time. So anyway, so, you, so so that's why it's so when you're defending us, no, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Then already you're playing into this discourse, this mind game, which is the spin which is put into this world. So it's very. It's very uh, tricky. Yeah, so it's intricate and and uh, sneaky, as you say. And uh, yeah, it's very fascinating and interesting. And this thing that it started becoming this um, derogatory term after the Kennedy assassination is yeah. really interesting. I think it's correct. And uh, I mean, there were conspiracy. I mean, the, the same kind of spin was used by by influence by influential leaders, uh, politicians long before that, of course. But they didn't use that term in that in that. Uh, oh. Well, that, well. that way then i mean i've seen the film oppenheimer for instance and in, in that you, there are all kinds of spin from 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 the top down and all that but we don't have to go down that rabbit hole now but um so uh, well we have we share some criticism towards journalism both you and i uh, but in some respects we do it from slightly different angles i think but we i mean we coincide in in many things i for instance think that that the press is uh, too, it's its uh, laden with a negativity bias that is not really motivated, but uh, we can come back to that. But another term that we both think is fascinating and interesting, it has starting to become very much uh, in use these days, is uh, false balance. They talk about false balance, and maybe that's not just something in, in, the, in the media, it's more like... Uh, debaters and and um, in op-eds and things like that you can in articles like that texts like that you can see this uh, talk about false balance and it's also used in a sneaky way what what is what is false balance and what is the problem with that well it's also you know just as the word conspiracy theory it's it's a, it's a brilliant uh mind game you know they 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 play with language to corrupt thinking so I don't know exactly how it originated. You know, you could always think that I mentioned before that I have the feeling that that the big media co corporations and money are, are more and more aligned with intelligence. So you can almost think that some think tank uh, thought about a way to, you know, because if you take, for instance, uh, Sveriges Radio, the, the Swedish public radio, where I used to work a lot for, they have the sort of promise to the listeners it's called Al to so to hear both sides of the story. That's sort of the main idea that you're going to hear both sides be objective. And how do you, how can you break this promise without breaking it? So mm -hmm. you create this fake word, false balance. So you're saying, well, you know, if you would have somebody here who says the Earth is flat, and the other one, ah, says, there it comes back again, oh, flat Earthers. Yeah, then you know, and you give them equal time. You create the illusion that this is sort of an equal discussion, and so, so, so then they're basically saying that people who are questioning the official narrative in, 
and, and you know, uh, when it comes to vaccines or 5G or the climate question, which you have investigated a lot, they are basically to be compared with flat earthers, you know, uh, and uh, and also the problem with that is that who is going to make this decision? Who's going to say that this science is so settled now? So anybody who questions it is representing false balance. Who's is? I mean, are you going to give this? Uh, are you going to give this decision to the authorities? Are they going to be like the Ministry of Truth then to say that this is you know this is the truth about vaccines and this everything even like you know somebody who is you know for instance one one very prominent critic of the covid vaccines is peter doshi the editor of the british medical journal it's the last person in the world you can call a you know tinfoil hat but to have him on the swedish radio to debate with somebody or even give his views on the you know the lack of transparency with the clinical trials and all that would be false balance according to this according to that narrative yeah 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 so so it's it's a very uh it's a very clever way to uh, to censor all critical voices from the the powerful narratives that you want to protect from any criticism that's what it is so and if you can see through that and if you can analyze that and drill into that it it comes down to who decides where crazy begins and and where pertinent and relevant argument yeah. stops. I and mean, I somebody add, has to decide where the where the limit, where the border is between those. Yeah. And, and you know, if I can add something also to that, you know, uh, so let's say that uh, you are uh, publishing news and you decide that well now, because I, one one person that contacted me, she had written an email to the Swedish television. And she's asked him, you know, I've been following the news for, you know, I'm a 20 years. And I, during the last three years, you have been so one sided and you haven't talked almost anything about the people that have their lives destroyed by these vaccines, by the side effects. You haven't had any critical. Why? Why is that? And she got a reply, you know, that sounds like Aurelian Newspeak that uh, we trust the science, the science say that the vaccines are good and safe and effective, and therefore to have other voices on would be false balance. So then, you know, if you would think in, in, a, in a perfect world where there is no corruption, yeah, I guess you could have a ministry of truth, but then you wouldn't need journalism. Mm. The role of journalism is to keep checks and balances on the authorities. How do you know that they are not biased? How do you know that they don't have uh, sliding doors between the industry. This is one of the most powerful industries in the world. How do you? Ch this is the role of journalism, which you basically abdicate when you when you go into this uh, false balance stuff. Uh, you know, uh, because then you're saying we don't have to check the authorities. We don't have to do any journalism. We just trust the authorities. We trust the Ministry of Truth. Yeah. Powerful stuff. I, I totally agree. And uh, so beware people of the term false balance when you run into that. Uh, so let's, I mean, we could, hopefully we can come back to discussing journalism and, and all the, the, the pitfalls and everything around it. Uh, but let's go 
deeper into your <laughs> worldview and what has inspired you and what inspired you to write this book that we're going to talk more about now. It begins, uh, I think it's at the very beginning, with a very powerful quote. You quote um, Captain Ahab from Herman Melville's novel, novel Moby Dick. And uh, Ahab says, all my means are completely rational. It's my end that is insane. And I, I think that is profound. I mean, I've read the novel, but it's, it's been a long time. So I didn't really remember that, that uh, statement, that quote. Uh, so it made me think. And uh, I, I wonder, how does that reflect society of today, yeah. that quote? Very good question. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I've been begin with that quote because I think it sort of also summarizes a lot of the messages in my book and also the Gnostics that I am dealing with a lot. And um, so, yeah, if if you just look at life on this planet, uh, you can say that one major principles for all living creatures is that thanks to the fact that you have lived your life, you have made this planet a little bit better. And that's that's how life. If you just you can take any species, take a salmon that's swimming, it's swimming two thousand kilometers up the river to mate, and it's bringing with itself, you know, molecules and particles that is so this ecosystem. And so basically, every creature, every day, their life together is creating this fantastic beauty, this paradise that we live in. And the human beings are the only creature which really do not live up to this principle. We, we cannot say that the world has become better because we have lived. For many of us, the, the, it's, it's the opposite. So why is that? Why, why is our culture so destructive? Uh, so he says, the, my, all my means are rational, but my, my goal is insane. So uh, what comes to my mind is I had an interview with my brother in, in my podcast a month ago. He, he, you know, he's warning about the risks of AI. So we talked a little bit about what is the difference between um, intelligence and wisdom? Is it the same thing? No. But then afterwards, after our conversation, I was pondering more about it. And I thought that that's really is to the core of this quote, because uh, my brother, he defines intelligence as, as the um, ability to solve complex problems, to, to achieve complex goals. But wisdom is as I my, my def, I think it's definition which which is holds that it's not only about being able to solve complex goals it really takes its beginning in an experience of the world where you experience yourself as a part of the world so I think a good um, analogy to 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 um, to show what I mean is like if you take what is the difference between a cancer cell and a, a healthy cell in the body. So you might say that from, a, from you know, the definition of, of intelligence, the, the cancer cell is more intelligent because it's achieving its goal more efficiently. But it lacks the experience that it's actually a cell in a body which is, is interdependent for its life. So it's a very good metaphor for how we live on this planet. If we, if we lose the wisdom if we lack the, the we have lost our um, our understanding or, or and it's not an intellectual understanding it's an experience that you're a part of this interdependent web of life then 
all of our intelligence is going to be destructive because it's going to be like a cancer cell. It's not going to be um, beneficial for the web of life. Yeah, I I have a fresh example actually of this. Uh, my, I think it is a, a good example of this thing. Of uh, all my means are very rational. It's my goal that is insane. Namely, that just a couple of weeks ago, I think it was the August twenty fifth, a couple of weeks ago before this, we're recording this interview. Um, the uh, European Union law, it's called the Digital Services Act, mm-hmm. on fighting so-called disinformation, came into force. And there's also even a, a permanent EU Commission task force on disinformation that was established. Uh, so, I mean, you mentioned the uh, uh, Ministry of Truth before and uh, the Orwellian thing here, the 1984. Isn't that isn't that a very good example of if you don't see what it's where it's leading, where it, what it's actually going towards, then you can you can you can kind of uh, come up with. Uh, the the opinion that well this is rational this is this is logical this is what we should do what, what would you say about uh, a law like that I think it's a very good uh, analogy and, and I think also what has inspired Melville to write you know for his quote I think also it's the capitalist system the the economic system uh, which is really driving so much uh, activity in the world which is basically you know it has the same principles as the cancer cells growth without giving anything back. So if you take a, a huge corporation, my brother said that in a way, a huge corporation is a little bit like an AI system. It doesn't matter if you get a good natured CEO leader who says, I don't want to cut down you know, forests and destroy ecosystems too. So we're going to do, if he doesn't deliver growth, the shareholders are going to get rid of him. It's institutionalized cancerogenic behavior, which is driving our our economy and and this system is sort of it's like you know you can you can hate it and you can think it's wrong but you we are all sort of dependent on this system so 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 uh, it's the driving force uh, of of uh, corporations mm-hmm. and uh, it's if you if you compare it with with a cancer cell it's very much like that it's 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 a cell which is growing without any wisdom without any feeling that it's actually a part of the world which is just destroying to create this profit, this this sort of fictional thing, which profit really is. Mm. So my, my, all my means are rational, but my goal is insane. Yeah, that's a, a compelling metaphor, actually, the, this thing with the cancer cell. But maybe it's more like a cancer cell, like maybe corporations, I don't know, uh, don't really have a goal. Because I mean, the goal is to 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 grow, as you say. So, question is, if there is, are other entities in society, people who are in power, people who decide things, that actually have goals, that have ends, and those ends are, if you if you would analyze them, you would realize that they're 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 insane. But they have them, and in order to get there, they there is there's a. I mean, the perfect example would be a threat. I mean. Uh, a perceived threat. I mean, there are they those examples abound, of course. Uh, if if it's not a threat from terrorism, it's threat from uh, immigration, or it's threat from a pandemic, or it's a threat from from the climate climate change, which is always there when the other threats are gone. So if you have a threat that is, um, I mean, it, it also it's like this thing with um, the false balance. I mean, it, it comes down to who decides what threat is real. 
let's say we have uh, a truly big actual threat that everybody could could um, uh, agree on. Like extreme example, very clear example would be an asteroid uh, aiming for, for, for the Earth, right? I mean, let's say we have a few weeks. We know that we have maybe eight weeks. It's like the film uh, Don't Look Up, you know, say eight weeks. And in order to I mean, that means that we have we have a slight chance to maybe deflect that asteroid, and in order to do that, we should uh, amass all the um, resources we have on this planet in order to come up with devices that could perhaps deflect that asteroid. Everybody would agree on that, right? But I mean, if the threat is like something like the, a virus, that is, it's very questionable whether it's as dangerous as they say, and whether these uh, measures that they're imposing are actually working. Or, I mean, uh, the rising of the, of, of the temperature, the global mean temperature, if that has that terrible consequence, as they say, I mean, that's more questionable and we can discuss that. But but it's, well, you, this is a long question, but you see what I mean? Is it is it that maybe there is a goal in, in the form of a, of, of a threat that they come up with in order to be able to, to have all these measures that are, as we say then, uh, Look rational, but the goal is insane. Do, is it is it very unclear no, what I'm I, asking I, about? Yeah, I think that's. I think it's a very very often used trick. You know, they create this called problem reaction solution. You create a, a problem, and then you know you have to solve. So now we have to take away your freedoms. We have to listen to your conversations now because we have to protect you against this threat. So of course, I think that's a, a scam, which is often used. Um, maybe I don't. I don't see it primarily in in the context of of this quote but i mean it's when you have because i think that's also you know the deep wisdom of this quote that it's not you can say that capitalism is the reason for the problem no the capitalism is a symptom of a culture which is disconnected from the earth from nature and at a deeper level so then we become like cancer cells on this planet and then our intelligence becomes like a cancer, you know, it's very rational. It's it's highly intelligent, but it lacks wisdom. And of course, also in in a, in a culture like that, you know, then it becomes in in a in a in a, in a culture where wisdom, a person who's a psychopath or a narcissist would, would not be very useful. So they would get rid of. Them. But in a culture where where we lack wisdom, such people come up to power and they. As you say, they use manipulations of all kinds to to pursue their goals. You talk about dominance culture. What is that? Yeah, dominator culture. It's it's a it's a it's a very good concept, and I uh, I use it in my book as as a contrast to indigenous culture. And uh, so basically, what it is, it's it's a culture that lacks wisdom. It's a culture that stems from this disconnect where. Uh, we basically have, um, I say we, I don't see me, but the, the, the sort of the decision making, the uh, structures of uh, society are a bit like cancer cells. They, are, they, they lack the wisdom to, to experience themselves as cells in this fantastic body and sell them, see themselves as separate. So everything becomes about domination, about, about dominating nature, about exploiting it see how can you make profit profit uh and you create this it's also very 
very uh, say conspiracy theories it's a fictitious it's like a fictitious word surplus it's also there's no surplus in nature it, it implies that something is not necessary it's something the surplus. no there is no surplus uh, so a, a dominator culture is um, is sort of dominated by this mindset uh, of, of the separate self of of um, of um, not integrating uh, your 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 goals with the larger body that you are a part of, so it, it becomes extremely destructive. Mm. Now we come to the inspiration that you've had from the Gnostics, I guess, because the Gnostics talk about this thing that we are part of part of this planet, part of Sophia, as they call her. Gaia is another another name for it. So the Gnostics, I've talked about the Gnostics on this. Channel many times, and and I interviewed people, not least John Lamblash, who I know you have interviewed several times as well. Also, who who has uh, dedicated his life's work to uh, understanding uh, the message from the, the the Gnostics. So the Gnostic, what can their message uh, and their worldview teach us, and what have they taught you in understanding how these problems in the world have 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 arisen? Yeah. I just, I just kind of, I'll come. I'll just add one more thing about dominated culture. It's also sure. can be very. Uh, I know you have, and I have had some discussions about if things are getting better and better. We hear that often, you know, that people are being lifted out of poverty and so on. But it's always uh, in a dominated culture. It's always something else is being sacrificed to bring somebody else out of poverty. It's, 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 um, it's, a, it's a system which you know where you. Um, where you see something as a surplus, this you can sacrifice these forests to create wealth over here, you know, and and uh, so so it's um, it's um, it's. But do, uh, do you th do you see it as a zero sum game even? <clears throat> no, but but I I think that you know there's a lot of good hearted people like you know you have talked about Hans Rosling, you know they they have this neoliberal thing that they say that okay when we create growth. Then we see that cities grow, people go more to school and all that. But if you have, a, it's, it's, it's like a disconnect. You know, you can have a cancer cell also have growth on the short term. But if the long term is killing the body where you live, you know, it's like still it's driven by this illusion that you can you can kill the planet and live on it. Uh, so uh, I think that's why why a dominator culture can never be sustainable in the long run. Although in the short term run, it can look very good, you know, because look, look what we did, you know, it's, it's like, you know, you can get a lot of highs, probably cancer cells can have a lot of high dopamine kicks while they're eating up the body <laughs> before they have destroyed the body and then it's game over. Yeah, well, I have a slightly different way of viewing, as you know, the the general development of, of, of humanity and the world. Uh, and But uh, it's interesting because I, I understand that you can see it from different angles, but we, we we can I think we can come back many times to yeah, discussing can, yeah, yeah. that that topic. So not, yeah. tell us a little bit about the Gnostics and what yeah. what they have taught you because I, I think it's really fascinating. And then we're going to delve into your your book, of yeah. course. Yeah. So so uh, one of the reasons why why some led me to the Gnostics that I had I've become fascinated with you know it's called the ancient mysteries. A lot of people today don't even know that they ever took place. And there was like a rite of passage in, in, in Initiationsrit, which took place for thousands of years 
course, in the antique, you know, large part of the Mediterranean basin and in, in, in southern Europe and northern Africa and Middle East. And uh, I had read about a book uh, from Albert Hoffman, the great Swiss mystic, where he, he said that uh, we in the Western world, we, we live, we have sort of how you call it, schizoid mind. We, we see ourselves as separate, separate self. And, and, and uh, he traced it, he said that the, the, the beginning of this was when the mysteries were destroyed by the early Roman church, where, they, where we lost this connection with, this, with the mysteries. So I became very curious to say, well, what actually, because he didn't really explain so well what, I don't think he knew exactly what the mysteries was, but he also had an intuitive feeling that it was something very important that had been lost. And, and this again, comes back to the dominator culture where did this mindset this this it's not even a parasitic mind because you have parasites in the ecosystem it's, it's like a destructive computer program which sees everything as separate how did this when did we have a more indigenous mindset in in europe and how did it get lost so i was very curious and i wanted to find out about the mysteries and it wasn't you like a straightforward search uh, but after many years I sort of came to to um, to study the Gnostics, and as you mentioned, John Lamb Lash, who's a scholar who devoted his life, and uh, so they were the, the the guardians of the mysteries, and uh, so the great secret of the mysteries, sort of the secret of the mystery, was that they realized, like all indigenous people do, that this planet is is a living. Uh, a divine intelligence which human beings can connect with and they called her the wisdom goddess sophia means wisdom in, in, in greece so by being able to um, in a state of trance like medicine men do and shamans they could interact with this uh, intelligence and get wisdom because that wisdom is what always have been guiding every healthy, sustainable human society of all times. So I, I realized that that's when we lost connection with wisdom. Uh, and um, so, and then I, when I started to learn more about the Gnostics, I also came across this concept of the Archons, which is like a counterforce. Uh, we can come back to that. And, uh, you know, as my research went on, this was, this was already um, uh, in, in the 2020s, I just realized that this is really bringing a big light on what's going on in the world right now. <laughs> uh, what have we been disconnected from? And it's also important to say, you know, that uh, this wisdom goddess is not an abstract fiction it's not an abstract deity somewhere far away that you you go to church and you have a preacher telling you what to believe no this is a first-hand experience of the only source of power that you will ever have every breath you take every thought everything source of your power is this living divine intelligence of the earth so when we have lost this connection to our true source of power, then we can easily be easier be manipulated into illusions of power that we can get from other 
sources. Uh, and we can come back to that. But uh, so this was, this really inspired me a lot. And, um, and also, you know, I'm not, I'm not so keen on religion. I'm not so keen on authorities. I'm not so keen on believing the very concept of believing it's a bit saying that you should be strong in your faith. You should believe what the authorities tell you to believe. To me, that doesn't make any sense. I want to have the experience. So I, one chapter of my book is, is uh, my own initiation. And uh, I'm not going to go into that now because, you know, it's, it's, it's very often it's like if you have... Even if you yeah, have well, life, I was going to ask about that later, but yeah. <laughs> we can, I mean, we can if skip you that. Have a, if you've had a life-changing experience, uh, and a mystical experience, which that was, even if for you it was transforming, when you try to put it into words, it very often comes out just banal, and especially if you want to, you know, just summarize it in a soundbite. So I'm not going to try to do that. But anyway, that was a very important uh, confirmation for me that what the Gnostics and all indigenous people really uh, were living according to, that it was true. And uh, so uh, it's, of course, been a very important reason for writing the book and for doing what I do. Yeah. So now we've, we've been referring to your book for such a long time here in this conversation. So let's let's be more concrete and talk about it per se. You, uh, you, you published it just last month, August 2023, and it's, uh, it's a fascinating book. It's, it's, it's personal, it's original, and from a conventional viewpoint, I would say it's courageous as well, and I, I like it a lot. Um, it's only in Swedish then, but the title in English would be The War Against Life. So what does that refer to? Is it some of the things that we've already been talking about here? Yeah. Uh I mean, this this quote by Melville, you know, it's, it's pretty much says it all. You know, my means are all rational, but my goal is insane. It's it's a culture without wisdom, which is becoming its own destructive force. So it's working against life, and uh, not only life in the sense of you know uh, living organisms, but everything which is connected with life, the soul, the spirit. Uh, the very development of of um, of living creatures in in this world, so that there is this force working against it, and also, and this is the fascinating thing with the Gnostics, that they they said that this force is working through the human mind. So one of the most important things is to discover how you yourself are influenced by this destructive. Because it's very, it's so easy to to put the blame on the outside world. You know, I'm perfect, I'm good, they're corrupt. So the Gnostics say that uh, it's a beautiful saying that uh, the struggle against the archons begin within your own psyche to discern what thoughts and what what uh, ideas are really your own, uh, and 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 which is. come from the outside, which come yeah. from so. Uh, I, I, John Lamblash, when I talked to him, he he described this archontic influence as some kind of a mind virus. Is that how you would describe it as well? Yeah. If if I look a bit like I'm fighting archons, it's a mosquito attack. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, okay. uh, yeah, I think that's a you know it, it's a bit of a stumbling block with the archons to to take it on board because it's so weird 
So I think you have to bring several different explanations and put them next to each other, and then you get sort of mind virus. It's a, it's a very good way of, of seeing it. Uh, you know, the, if you look at it, just the Wikipedia, the definition of a virus is that it's something which doesn't have power of its own, but it uses sort of piggybacks on your power. So it comes into your cell and it fools your the production of your cell to, to reproduce its own. It's... Uh, uh, virus particles, right? And then after a while, it, it starts to dominate. So it takes over the cell and it can eventually take over the whole, the whole human body. It can kill the human body. We know that. That's how a virus works according to, to the science. But this virus, you could say that it works in a similar way, but it's not the biological. It's a, it's a, it's a mind virus. So it, it can come in and, and hijack the production of your thoughts and ideas and thoughts. So, so the Gnostics, they, uh, uh, you know, with technology, we can come to that, you know, the Archontic, because they described it as a non-organic force. It's not the part of the ecosystem. It's not the part of the evolution. It's, it's, uh, it's a counter force. Yeah. So, so uh, I asked my brother, you know, just in a, a just took a walk, had a conversation, you know, and I, I didn't say why I was asking. It's just, you know, because he's warning about artificial intelligence becoming so powerful that it becomes like super intelligent, that it can almost be stronger than us in all aspects. So I said, what if there would have been such a force back in the Stone Age? How would they affect it as then? You know? So he thought about it and he said, well, they, could, they, they wouldn't have had so many possibilities. They would have had to tried to create maybe alliances with someone. So the Gnostics, they warned against the salvation theology, uh, especially from the, from the, the Old Testament. Ab Abrahamic religions. Abrahamic religions, yeah. When Abraham was on the mountaintop and he heard this voice saying that, I am your God, I have created it. And he made an, you know, they said that, look, we know who this voice is. This is not the God who created the universe. This is this archontic mind virus. So they, they basically saw that this was a way of programming the human mind and programming it in such a way that we would distance ourselves from the sacred connection with earth, with nature. And, you know, so a bit like a technology, but, but, uh, maybe you could liken it, you could compare it with a computer, vi computer virus that has a certain tendency to, to pro program the mind in a destructive way. That's how they saw religion, organized religions, and especially then from the, the Abrahamic religions. So yeah. that's, of course, also one reason why they were exterminated, not only exterminated by the Roman church, but also they burned the libraries, they even... As I understand, they even banned talking about that they had ever existed, and they put the spin on their teachings. And so that's also one reason I was I was fascinated with their message because it really would have been forever gone in oblivion if it hadn't been for a very interesting finding in in a cave in Egypt. I think it was in 1945. Mm. Farmer just by accident by accident found. Uh, some uh, some jars where they had preserved Gnostic texts, 
and the the main theory is that the Gnostics in the, in the fourth or fifth century, when they realized that they would be exterminated, that they had put down these jars, uh, a bit like a message to the future. So I, in one of my radio programs, I, I compare it with you know, a, like a detective story, where where the criminals have managed a perfect crime and they raised all the dead with the plot and the earth mm. somebody finds a jar and it starts this message so so john lamb lash as you mentioned he has devoted his life by you know reading these very very cryptic and, and major meager papers for like 30 times and trying to make sense of them uh, so uh, at least you know as a journalist if you know that something is so classified and it's the most classified and nobody wants to give it to you you become curious that maybe there is something to it. Yeah, sure, <laughs> definitely. Well, you know, you, we have spoken a little bit about the uh, the, the Cathars, which was a group that that um, supposedly carried the, the Gnostic wisdom on, but in their own way, maybe they had their own interpretation. But they were they are um, seen as a Gnostic group, and I've I've uh, made a couple of videos about about the cathars on this channel and interesting i mean since you spoke about these jars being hidden there in the fourth or fifth century and then found again in 1945 like a warning warning to the future and it's like a i mean they they concealed this uh, message to be found in the future also the last cather that was killed in in southern france i think it was 1321 i i can't remember his name exactly i think it's bayabus or something like that bayabus and he famously said that, and this was in 1321, and he said, in 700 years, the laurel will become green again before they killed him. I mean, the laurel meaning that, I mean, the, it will become green again. We, we, we will understand where we come from again in 700 years. And that's exactly 2021, as you know. So it's kind of interesting. Maybe this is the time when, when we are supposed to, to realize this, these truths again. I don't know. I think so, and, and you know it's it's a very good uh, point you make there. And I think also when you when you study history and also when you study news and everything, you're always sort of being taught that to see everything as separate. It's just happening this, but if you if you look at it and if you zoom out from it, you can also see a pattern. So um, yeah, they destroyed the Gnostics, uh, and then all the you know the genocides and the conquests and the the colonizations that took place afterwards you can see them as separate events but you can also see it as a dominator culture spreading over the world and wherever they would go they would erase the carriers of wisdom that still had this deep connection like the cathars had with mother earth they have preserved these methods of, of connecting and, and and receiving wisdom and uh, you saw it, you know, in, in America, they destroyed the, all the indigenous, they, the biggest genocide of probably of all time, if you just look at the numbers. And also the, what is called a witch hunt, you know, yeah. there's millions of, of women and some men also that were burned at the stake, so the most horrendous crimes ever, ever committed. Uh, they, they were women that still had this connection they had this they carried this wisdom that they had got from the grandmothers and the, so they were dangerous they had to be taken out too yeah. so when you when you when you zoom out from the details you put you connect the dots as you said then you then you can see that 
the destruction of the Cathars, the destruction of the indigenous cultures all over the world, the, the uh, mass murder of, of women who were called witches, they're not separate actions. They're part of this dominator culture uh, taking over more and more of this, you know, of, of the world. Yeah, it's compelling. I, I, I think you're right. I mean, it's, uh, it looks like that when you, when you look at it uh, honestly and, and see and connect the dots, as you say. And the sad, saddest thing is that these people, especially, I mean, let's take these women and, and a few men who were burnt at the stake. They, what they were were just being natural. They were being exactly the way that human beings are supposed to be because they knew the connection to, to Gaia and to maybe higher powers and, and their own inner power and all that. And the, that was just banned. That was dangerous. Yeah. And it's just natural. It was the in, unnatural thing that was, that was uh, approved. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, know, the Gnostics also, they, they, you know, I think Baudelaire said that, that um, the devil's this greatest trick was to make people believe that he doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. Uh, but with the Gnostics, you could say even more, the devil's greatest trick was to make people believe that he is your God. Yeah. It's even so, one step further, yeah. It's yeah, really... Yeah. So, of course, I don't want to take anything away, you know, from the teachings of Jesus and so, but if you can burn, if you can burn women at the stake, how far away can you ever get from, you know, the message of love and... Yeah. But then, of course, we have to appreciate that, that the church and, and other religious institutions have become less, uh, perhaps, less violent in these days. And, and there are yeah. a, lot so, of, a lot of Christian yeah. priests, priests who are very, very wise and very, very yeah. loving. And, I mean, you, yeah. you shouldn't, I mean, we have to be, yeah. so, we have so, to I mean, appreciate that, of course. The Gnostics thought that, basically, this was this religion came from the Archons as a mind virus. Mm. Other people would say that, no, it was like, especially like the teachings of Jesus, that he was basically also a Gnostic, but that this message had been distorted and hijacked Mm. by powerful influences so that's an open discussion. yeah it's an open yeah i know there there are different opinions about what really happened and what he really said and i mean because he didn't write anything down himself and that's also a completely separate discussion that we can have for several hours <laughs> at another point very very interesting uh, i know that john lamblash has some uh, disturbing uh, opinions in my view about that but Never mind. Doesn't matter. It's all very, very fascinating. So, I uh, just want to ask about one specific uh, aspect of this mind virus. You might say you talk in, in your book, partly in a very personal way, uh, about artificial imitations of of the true blessings in life. Uh, you might call it simulations, uh, and and the Gnostics call this antimimon. I think it's a Greek word. Uh, you might call it false gods. I know that Carl Jung, the psychologist, psychiatrist, Carl Jung used the term antimimon pneuma or antimimon pneuma. You might pronounce it in American English or something like that, um, which translates to ungodly intellect or counterfeit spirit. So it's, I mean, we all know that we engage in games and shows instead of doing the real thing, instead of, of uh, experiencing life firsthand. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, we're talking about human interactions of different kinds. It could be like, you know, sex, joy and love for nature, uh, whatever, you know, we seem to sit by screens more than we experience life as it is these days. Can you elaborate on that Antimimon concept? Yeah. 
Well, as you know, it's a good thing we give this interview in English. In Swedish, there is really no good translation. In English, we have actually a word. It's called counter-mimicry. A counter-mimicry. It's a, it's a copy where the, the, the purpose of the copy is the opposite of the original. That's the definition of, of a counter-mimicry. So um, basically, uh, as the Gnostics saw it, that's my interpretation of, of this um, it's a bit like a, a mind virus, but very, very potent. It's almost a bit like a, sometimes talk of a lesser God, of an envious. So every time something is created uh, by the divine force of nature, they create a copy, which is not, they don't have, they don't have the, they don't, it's, it's used by algorithm. It's not, so, so due to that fact that they can only imitate intelligence, then the copies will have this opposite purpose. It will, it will, instead of serving life, it will have the opposite purpose. You know, we have talked about already the dominator culture and so on. So, um, so you can take, I mean, several, exa one example of this you could take is, uh, is Facebook, for instance. Uh, it has, you know, it's the copy of a community. So what is the purpose of a community? So people coming closer to each other and trust each other and really be intimate with each other. And Facebook has some of those things, but most people, when they use Facebook, they're sitting alone in their room, staring into a screen. They're not coming closer. So, so it's, it has the opposite purpose, social media. And I, I always take pornography as another very strong example because it can have some resemblance of sexuality. But what is the purpose of sexuality? It is trust, intimacy, love, ecstasy. Uh, and pornography more and more is, you know, permeated by domination, the opposite thing. So, so it's sort of, it's like, it's, you can say that it's like a virus that permeates the human mind and, and give rise to the creations of all these kind of things that are counter mimicries to the original thing. Uh, so it's a bit tricky to take on board. So the archons did not create pornography. Of course, it's a creation of the human mind, but it's the human mind contaminated by the archontic virus. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating and interesting. And but I I, I wonder is if all simulation is bad. Uh, I I guess I mean the obvious answer is no because I mean sometimes we need simulation, but you can go very far when you find counter examples here that might be you know make you start thinking about what is a simulation and what what is a counter mimicry and what is a a, a, a sound uh, sane simulation oh. i mean i, I i've taken so, the I, i've said these examples i think to you before uh you, you know you you, know, you mentioned pornography it's like watching people having sex instead of having sex yourself but what about watching elite sports instead of engaging in sports yourself you're sitting on your couch you're a couch potato and just watching elite sports is that the same is that also a simulation that is that is bad or playing online war games instead of engaging in war yourself simulating a surgical op operation instead of operating directly you know you, you understand what i'm saying there you can you can find all kinds of simulations yeah. where it seems pretty reasonable that you actually simulate something sometimes just in order to have a fuller experience of life uh, uh, in some senses and also to be able to perform things better maybe i don't know oh you're absolutely right i mean you, you shouldn't be a fundamentalist about 
technology and so on. Uh, but the interesting thing with the Gnostics that although they lived, you know, several thousands of years ago, they actually had a word, how, which Stanley Kubrick have used in his famous movie. Yes, yes, famously. Space Odyssey, yeah. Uh, how actually means virtual reality. So you would think that this is a concept that only somebody would know who is, you know, living in our time with technology, but no. And, and what they were warning against was when human beings would prefer the simulation to the real, that was the, that was the real danger to go really astray. And um, so it comes back also to this thing with a, with, a, with a virus, with something which doesn't have really agency of its own. It has to piggyback on, so what is it? So, so basically what this is, it's piggybacking on our God-given faculty of imagination but it turns it around, so it becomes simulation. So it, you know, we have this very unique uh, uh, possibility that other other animals don't have to to think in abstract terms. So, so we can create, you know, we can do um, schemes or bridges and airplanes and so on. But we have to keep this in check. If 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 we just let it run completely loose, we can get lost in this. And that's what the Gnostics warned about. So we get lost in uh, representations and simulations. And so, so now we have Facebook. The next step is metaverse. So you, you put on these VR glasses and then you're immersed in a, in a completely fake reality. And also, as we know, they, they always create this VR augmented reality, as it says, really manipulated reality to, to um, seduce our dopamine systems to give us easy kicks. So when you're in that a lot and you come back to the real world and it's kind of boring, you know, it's, and it's a sad thing. It happens today. Sometimes when you bring children out in nature, they think it's boring. Nothing is happening. The grass is growing slow. I mean, they, they're, they're being used to this. So that's the danger when we get, when we start to prefer the simulation. And, uh, you know, the technology is not so so far away when when we don't even need to have VR glasses. When it can become holograms, even Mark Zuckerberg talks about that. That in the near future, you won't even need any glasses or any screen to enter the metaverse. You enter through your own mind, you know. So so it's <laughs> when you hear that, and then you read the Gnostic warnings, it's a bit chilling, isn't it? Yeah, it's again compelling when you when you describe it like that, and uh, I think it's good to take heed, actually. But I mean, since we're talking about technology here now, maybe the latest and perhaps most extreme example of antimimon might be AI, artificial intelligence, or as you would prefer to call it, archontic intelligence, I suppose. <laughs> uh, so you you have mentioned your brother several times here. Your brother is Max Tegmark. Tegmark, Swedish. He is a known physics prof professor at MIT, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, in Boston. So you, I, I think that you two don't really share the, the exact same spiritual outlook on life, but you share, you definitely share a concern for AI. Mm. And Max spoke at length about his AI worries on the Lex Friedman podcast, and that became viral, uh, I think, more or less. And he also talked about it when he hosted a traditional uh, radio show, summer show on Swedish national radio, Swedish public radio this summer. Uh, and in this pro program, Max, he lauded you for being one of the most 
brave journalists in Sweden. Uh, now, the interesting and sad thing that happened afterwards was that he was harshly criticized by several pundits for giving credit to quote unquote unknown unknown conspiracy theorist. I mean, you're his brother for Christ's sake. So how do you feel about your name being perceived as toxic in this way? And 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 also, I mean, by way of, of your brother talking well about you. Well, you know, on a personal level, I really maybe take it as a compliment because it means that, you know, I, I told my brother once. The first time I had um, I had an interview taken down from YouTube, you know, it was censored. It was an, inter an interview with an Israeli uh, uh, documentary maker who, who had made a documentary about uh, people side effects of the vaccines. And I said, you know, that because I, I've always spoken very harshly about journalistic prizes, I think it contaminates journalism and corrupts journalism. You know, it's, it drives this narcissism instead of. But I said, maybe this is the, the, the greatest, you know, price you can get as a journalist that that you get censored. It means that you have done something that they deem important enough to shut you up. So, uh, but I mean, I, you know, this whole, I mean, so disgusting and this smearing campaign against my brother, you know, it started already half a year earlier. It's the Swedish, they call them the watchdog against racism expo. Which is really now, you know, what, what it is, it's it's a propaganda arm for the powers that be. And it was a, it was a horrible, dishonest, smearing campaign that was sort of, basically, the message was that my brother was sort of right wing or he was a Nazi, you know, and he got so much hate mail. And, and uh, so, I mean, I, I really feel sorry for him, you know, because anybody who knows my brother, he's the last person in the world that you would compare with him. Nazi or whether in a well, it's like that you know Godwin's law that the longer a conversation goes on, the the the, the more likely it is that that somebody's going to refer to the Nazis in the end. <laughs> it's always happening. So you know, it's 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 really sad because he, you know, in a way, I've always been a little bit of a troublemaker, so I'm used to sort of getting beat up and sort of. But for him, you know, he he's not so much of a troublemaker, but he's very honest. He's, this is his calling in life. He feels in his summer program, he played this ABBA song, Cassandra, because that's the way he feels. He feels like Cassandra is trying to warn us every way he can. Look at what this is going with artificial intelligence. Are we willing to ruin everything we have? He's trying to warn us. And all of a sudden, you know, he's, he's being referred to by some people as a Nazi, you know? And so, I mean, has this has it created real real is, troubles for him? Problems for him? You know that? I, mean, I know it's been very painful for him because you know. He, but he hasn't lost his job or anything like that. No, he hasn't. But I mean, it's it's really it's hurt him a lot. I mean, on a personal level, I and mean, for for him to you know to be attacked in that completely dishonest way, you know. But so, uh, but as I as I said, for me personally, I think I you know. I tend to say a little bit like the bullies in the schoolyard, schoolyards, you know, you, they can beat you up, but you realize that who, who are, they are really just traumatized children, like we all can be. So the most important thing is not to internalize, become the bully yourself. But if you talk in Gnostic terms, you can say that there are people that have early on lost their connection with true power. So they're being uh, seduced by the sort of illusion of power that you can get when you can dominate somebody and insult somebody, or, you know, but uh, they don't have any real power. So mm. it's not to be 
afraid of. But uh, I feel very, you know, I feel very sad about what, what, what they tried to do to my brother. But I think also that, you know, I talked about this also in, in one article that uh, it's <laughs> one thing we, we come back to the archons, you know, uh, they say that they can never create anything original. They can only copy. So even you can see the smearing campaigns, it's also a little bit algorithmic. They keep saying, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist, you're a, you're a right-wing extremist and compare you with Nazis and stuff. And, I, you know, I think after a while, people start to see this algorithm for what it is. And so I think that a little bit now, it's losing its its grip mm. over people's Because minds. you can see that they're, put, they're putting people like you and me and your brother in, 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 in the same kinds of boxes all the time. And I mean, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, so I, I, think, I think a little bit that, that these, uh, these mind games are a little bit losing their grip. I, I, I see this bit tendency that, for instance, this word conspiracy theorist is not so powerful anymore. In, in, in many um, communities, people just, you know, see it for what it is, it's bullshit insult. Yeah. Okay, so, so let's talk a little bit about what Max actually says about AI and the, the hazards of AI. And uh, and do you agree completely with what he's, he's saying? Uh, well, I agree with him completely in terms of the risks of, of artificial intelligence and, and also how far it has already gone, you know. Um, but we differ in the view that uh, sort of his view... He, he says that you know with the right use artificial intelligence can make us prosper and we could you know can solve the problems of poverty and solve cancer and everything and and uh, i i i don't i just don't see it that way and it it might be useful you know you, you asked about the term anti mimon counter mimicry so you might say that ai is really the 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 biggest so so then, then we can you know it's interesting with the Gnostics that if you go to the mythology, how they describe the origins of the Archons, is that basically uh, they are derived by the wisdom god by mistake. So uh, one one way of seeing it, we talked about the virus, but if you if you think about it a little bit like a uh, fake god or like the, the spirit of fake and it's always broadcasting towards us you know it's archontic influences i guess you can compare it a little bit with like a wi-fi signal so if you're sitting in a room where there's wi-fi and you don't have a computer device you're not even going to know that it is a wi-fi signal you need it to be able to to take this signal so but according to the gnostics during certain conditions, especially uh, uh, when we are under fear, and of course when we get more and more enmeshed in technology, we become more and more like receivers of this Wi-Fi signal. So, so this is how I see it. So that artificial intelligence, I don't say that it is the same thing as Archon, the Archons, but it's, it is a little bit like the, uh, how do you call it? Grenssnitt, it's the... Uh, interface. Interface. It's the interface that this archontic force can use to to insinuate themselves into our reality and, and take over more and more 
of our reality. And, and, and the main warnings of the Gnostics, you know, often we, we think about an enemy as a conqueror, you know, like Putin invaded Ukraine. It's always physical. So the Gnostics said that they're, they're not trying to steal our gold or they're trying to steal our reality. So that's why it's always an invasion of the mind parallel to it. Everything is interconnected in the indigenous way. You don't separate the mind from the, the planet, from the spirit. It's all, it's all connected. So I, I just don't see how, you know, by being seduced and being more and more uh, integrated with this algorithmic intelligence that we are going to prosper. And I think also, you know, I, I mentioned um, how we have lost the connection with our true intelligence of the planet. And, and I think that's also something which people, when you have lost this connection, you know, anybody has just seen a documentary with, with David Attenborough. You just want one square meter in a forest. When you start trying to understand what's going on there, you know, the myriad, billions of, of species and microbes and life that is, you know, and then you, this whole forest and, and, and the, the, what do you call it, mycel? Um, it's, maybe it's called mycel, I don't know. Well, the roots of fungi, right? Fungi, which is called the, world, the wood wide web. This fantastic uh, intelligence where there is never any garbage or any surplus, everything knows exactly what to do. Then, as, you know, as it is with our bodies, actually, if we just yeah, understand our bodies, it. exactly, then you know, you, you can feel the awe of this intelligence, which is way beyond anything which will ever be achieved by, by uh, uh, artificial intelligence. So, uh, when, when they say yeah. that's gonna, gonna, yeah, so, so I think when we have lost this connection. Then this becomes like an ersatz. We become seduced by the technology, the gadgets that it can can hand to us. But it's it's also you know you have to ask yourself why. So it's going to solve the problem of cancer. Why do we have so much cancer? Uh, it's going to solve our problem. Why do we have this problem? We have the problems because we have been so for two thousand years. We have been so uh, dominated by this dominator culture. So that's the root of our problem. We have lost the connection with the the we have lost the sense of being cells in this body where we live uh, yeah. asked, because i didn't really answer your question what, how do i differ from my brothers yeah so so his definition of, of intelligence is the the ability to achieve complex goals so in that sense it really seems like this is a godlike power you know it's more intelligent than anything else in the world uh but then he's always comparing it with something individually, like this chess player, like this tree. But as I said, in nature, the intelligence is, is in the complexity. So if you, if you give the, the uh, uh, artificial intelligence to, to run a rainforest, then it's going to come up very short. Mm, of course. To, yeah, it can be able to destroy a rainforest, but it can never, it, it doesn't have this intelligence. So, so it's also very important to be humble that that it is yeah it's a very powerful intelligence but it lacks wisdom mm. but i mean not... most people would intuitively and and not even intuitively i mean directly understand that exactly what you just said most people 
realize that. And even people who are who are developing AI realize that. So I mean, what's the huge problem here? It's like, I mean, if we're 8 billion people, say 7.5 billion people were completely like zombies. They didn't feel anything. They didn't intuit anything. They didn't even, even think clearly. Then it would be really, truly, truly dangerous. But I mean, most people aren't like that. Most people are wise and uh, I mean, they can real. they, they don't want to... <laughs> succumb to to some kind of technological technocratic uh, dictatorship they don't want to do that no. or am i wrong no of course not you know it's uh it's a bit like you know you say the mind virus it's it's creeps into you slowly and you don't notice it it's a very um, good quote i i've used it in my book from the mystic carlos castaneda yeah famous writer in the 60s he says they give us their mind so what he means by that is that they give us their mind they enter slowly slowly so it after a while if you don't, if you're not really paying attention and being present it's going to feel like your own mind so uh i did an interview a few months ago with a german what do you say anthroposophist <laughs> thomas meyer and he said that these days you know he said that transhumanism is the covert state religion and first I said, well, that is outrageous. How can you say that? But then I, I thought about it and said, yeah, it's probably true. What is, we don't have any official religion, but the covert unofficial religion is transhumanism. It's the view that we are nothing more than biological uh, computers, basically, um, machines. So since we are machines, we need to be upgraded. You know, the Moderna, I think it was the, the CEO Moderna, he, he talked about his vaccine as a new operating system so we have as i said they give us their mind we have integrate we have we view ourselves with this archontic view of ourselves that we are nothing more than uh machines so then the solutions of course is technology and you know it's it's a one of the very uh, haunting um, messages from the gnostics i think they said i don't know word by word but when they be beheld this planet the archons and they wanted to be like us but they realized they couldn't be like us so they decided to make us become like them so there you i think you have a very good explanation to yeah. what's going on but then well this is also <laughs> we can go down so many rabbit holes if we have a an eternal soul and we go somewhere else into some other dimension where we die then we can see everything from from another perspective and we and let's say then that 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 um, we go berserk with with ai and and transhumanism and all that and in a couple of hundred years everybody's just like walking biological robots for real and then i mean what soul would would want to reincarnate into this planet and these bodies anyway we would i mean that's a completely different uh, discussion. I just, um, sorry, I went off on a tangent there. But anyway, so we've been talking for a long time. Just to wrap wrap this up a little bit, you talk about, uh, also inspired by the, the Gnostic, Sophia's or Sophia's correction. What is Sophia's correction? How can we make this world a wonderful place? Yeah, so so this is uh, it's a very interesting uh, uh, trope. Uh, I don't know if I can explain it briefly, but uh, uh, you know John Lamb Lash, who's a scholar of Gnostics, we both have interviewed him. Uh, I don't agree with everything he says, but uh, 
he has found that in the original text, there is this word diortosis, I don't know how to pronounce, which means like two-tie solution or correction. And so his interpretation of that is that um, when Sophia, so, so this fantastic story that has been suppressed for the, for the you know, millennia, how the Gnostics view the biography of the earth, how this divine intelligence morphed into the earth. It, it tells sort of before she became the earth that she, at one point uh, when she had, uh, she, she was in a state of shock, she sort of dreamed up the archons. So it came up this, so, so sort of to go back to the mythology then, uh, she had designed the human genome, the human species, before she by mistake dreamed up the archons. So that means that the archontic challenge, we are not equipped really to face that. That, that is why it's so dangerous. We are not sort of, we don't have the, the, the um, inherent equipment to deal with this challenge. So the idea of Sophia's correction is that at one point, there is this, uh, a very powerful quote in, in the Gnostic text where she confronts this archontic force and says that you are nothing that a pseudo God. And, and then she, she talks about the future at the consummation of your work, the human beings will, will see through your illusions. And so at the consummation of your works, it really means in a future time where all these archontic well, they throw everything at us, the kitchen sink. So if you just look around, it seems to be the time we're living in right now. Maybe it's now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so the idea uh, of Sophia's correction is that this is a time where she will bring in, maybe you can call it a mutation, a sort of a new upgrade to the human uh, being, uh, but we have to participate in it ourselves. We have to... It's up to everybody to be a part of Sophia's correction. So one way of seeing it is it's a bit of a, that this, this time is a bit of a crossroads. Are you gonna sort of be, go into oblivion into this digital cloud or are you going to be sort of a part of Sophia's correction and to, to morph into a more enlightened and, and uh, uh, kind of species of humanity and uh, I think what is what is um, attractive about it is that it's it's not a it's a participatory it's all about the Gnostic it's a participatory myth, open ended. So you have your role to play. So so again, it's not about sort of hoping to praying that something is going to solve. No, it's for you to dive into your own consciousness, your own psyche, and correct yourself in the first place your traumas, your shortcomings, your narcissism, your addictions, and then you can be part of correcting the world. So I think that's a very, very inspiring, um, very inspiring um, thing. Yeah. Be, be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah. To uh, quote, I think it was Gandhi who said yeah. it. So, Pat, it's been great talking to you, as always. Uh, for those who speak Swedish mainly, uh, where can people find out more about your work and, and your book and the book, of course? Yeah, so uh, uh, my my uh, podcast is called Folkets Radio. Uh, 
so it's in english is f o l k e t s r r a d i o dot s e so folketsradio.se my website um and uh, my book i think the best way to buy it is from carnival förlag from their homepage uh, you can also get it from the big bookstores like bookus and ad libris and uh, is it going to be translated do you know anything about that or have you thought about that uh, hopefully someday uh, it's just in, it's just in the beginning and now the launch so uh, so we'll see about it uh, i hope so yeah one day okay great yeah it's 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 a it's a great book i recommend it everybody who speaks swedish and hopefully in the future also it will be out in in english so and i hope that we can continue our conversation and our collaboration uh, in different ways uh, on on both our respective platforms and maybe in other places as well so thank you so much for being on the show pad thank you Ander. Uh, uh, thank you anders and also thank you for uh, your courageous work we, you know i recently interviewed you also on my podcast and you 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 are also in a similar journey you have left the mainstream and and i think it's it's you know it's very so important to have this conversation and especially you know you don't agree about everything but that's what we have to do we have to have conversations and 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 uh, you know so uh, I think your podcast is is a very great source of, of inspirations for, and I so I wish for us to have many more conversations in the future. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Thank you so much. See you next Thank time. You. Bye bye.